Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. is the Josh Marshall podcast with Josh Marshall and Kate Riga. Uh, Kate is back. Our co-host Kate is back from uh, from the the barren um, wastelands of the Arctic. And I, you know, I was news is continuing. Yeah, well, I was thinking we have to send Kate away more because because you know Biden kind of pulled everything together as soon as Kate left. And we're gonna you know one of the things we're gonna talk about today is the uh, denouement of the debt ceiling standoff, crisis, uh, negotiation, whatever you want to call it. And I think, you know, we had a number of episodes of the podcast where we sort of tried to look at the tea leaves to see if, you know, was the White House going to invoke the 14th Amendment? Were they going to have the Treasury sell these console bonds? You know, all of these extraordinary measures to get out of under the debt ceiling limit trap, the sort of the hostage taking situation. Uh, and then it became clear, well, they're just they're not just they're not just having a meeting where Biden says, I'm not going to negotiate or, you know, where they're going to get together and discuss the fact that he's not going to negotiate and maybe talk about some different possibilities and some ways of, I mean, he's negotiating. And uh, it all seemed, you know, it did not seem to be going in a great direction. And uh, I think I wrote a few posts basically saying like, look, let's not lie to ourselves. I mean, this is, they said, they said for six months, they weren't going to negotiate and now we're negotiating. And then uh, it kind of out of the blue, or at least, you know, let, let, let me, you know, speak for my own predictions and preconceptions here. It seemed out of the blue to me. Suddenly Biden came up with a deal that seemed pretty on the Democrats' own terms, you know? Um, and we've, we've, we've talked about this a bunch at this point. I mean, there's a whole debate about what, you know, what constitutes a good deal for the Democrats. I mean, it was, it was mainly conceding on things that, that were not things they wanted. But as I, I think the best way to um, describe it is that, this is more or less what you would get in a normal budget negotiation. Democrats had very thin but unified control of the federal government. They they passed a bunch of stuff. They passed a budget. The opposition party took control of one house of Congress. That's going to pull 
that's going to pull fiscal policy to the right, especially if it's the House, just because of the dynamics of how of how our system of government works. Um, but this was certainly much less than Republicans, I think, thought they were going to get. I think it was much less than almost anybody in D.C. thought they were going to get. And uh, and then it was over. And I think for a lot of us, and I will include myself in this, there was there was still a lot of um, a lot of confusion about how how did this happen? How did he pull this off? Now there's uh, there's you know a strong you know dark Brandonist vibe. You know Joe pulled it out. Joe Joe always had this, and I mean you know <laughs> like. You know, I love me some Joe, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna disagree with that. But it is, you know, as we've always said, this kind of debt ceiling hostage taking is sort of like if you know Kevin McCarthy got elected, he comes into the House floor with a huge, you know, vest full filled with plastic explosives, and says roll back the inflation uh, you know inflation reduction act or cut medicaid or we're all going up in smithereens what do you, what do you do if 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 you don't have a plan to kind of like pull a trap door out of under him or have trick him and the SWAT team comes in what do you do do you say like okay make my day make my day dude make my day kevin go ahead how how do you get out of basically giving up everything and uh, I still don't think we know the answer to that, or I don't know the answer to that. I think the the two things that I come up with that are as close as I can get to an explanation are, A, I think Kevin McCarthy realized at a certain point, I'm never going to get a deal if my theory of this is that I've got to hold on to the Freedom Caucus, because then I'm... I'm certainly not going to get any um, any Democratic votes. And even if I hold on to the Freedom Caucus, I'm still going to have like half a dozen freaks who won't vote for what they demanded. And, and that is not, so it's, nothing's going to happen. And I'm not going to get a deal. And we are going to default. And look, I'll give, I'll give McCarthy some credit. I think at some level, he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force a default so I can hold on to this job. I'm just not not going to do that. Um, and I think even beyond that, he he probably still wouldn't hold on to the job. And I think you know one th- one thing we saw at the end of that process, and if you kind of uh, push back a couple weeks, there there were the first reports of some kind of a deal, and then a couple times Republicans said, "All right, we're walking away." And McCarthy would go out and say something like, look, they're not being reasonable. They're not, you know, they're not giving anything. They've got to put something on the table. They're, they're just saying no, no, no. And then like a day later, they'd come back. And I think that Biden just, you know, they were coming back on maybe, I don't know, more work requirements. Um, I think a really big thing was, you know, where you set the freeze and how long the freeze goes. I think what they what the um, what Republicans initially wanted was spending gets capped at 2022 levels, i.e., 
you have an actual you begin with a cut in real in in um in real terms you actually you 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 go back or what is it i guess that's in nominal terms i get confused on these things the, the point is the actual dollar number goes down 2023 went up from 2022 and in 2024 it goes back to 2022 and then it's frozen there maybe with like a 1% increase a year for like a decade or 8 years or something like that and that meant one thing back in the 2011-2012 era when we still had, you know, couple percent, two or three, four, you know, three percent inflation, pretty different now when we're still like, you know, in the high single digits in inflation. So those are big caps. Biden kept saying no. And I think uh, they looked at it and, and, you know, the Republican negotiators and I'm like, I don't think he's going to budge here. And somehow or another, I think you put those two things together and you get what we got. Um, that's still not altogether a, a satisfying explanation. I mean, I don't need an explanation to be satisfied with the result. I was pretty happy with the result, but it still doesn't really explain to me exactly how it happened. Um, so that's that is uh, that's something we're going to talk about today. We're also going to talk about a couple other topics. Obviously, uh, uh, one of those being the you know the ex president who gets indicted for something new every 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 few days or something like that. But before we do now. It's a little different. We're sponsored by someone different today. We're sponsored by us, TPM. Because here's the deal. We just today, we launched our annual TPM Journalism Fund Drive. This is an annual drive where we ask for contributions because the journalism business absolutely sucks these days. And, uh, you know, you see, it seems like every week you hear about, oh, this place is, is finally shutting down or that place is finally shutting down or they are um, becoming a content farm or they're pivoting to this or pivoting to that. Well, what our advantage is as, as, a, as an independent outlet um, has always been we've got really dedicated supporters and, and, and readers. And one of the ways that we have a really critical way that we have been able to uh, survive during this period is by asking for your support. Now, we launched that today. Uh, if you can, uh, if, you're, if you're open to the idea of, of supporting our work, supporting our team, uh, keeping us on the ball, keep uh, moving forward, breaking news stories, doing all the stuff that, that, uh, that we do. Toss us a few bucks for for our efforts. Um, it, it it will go to good use. It is really critical for us for a, a number of reasons, some of which we'll discuss in this episode and, and probably the next couple episodes, something like that. It's really important. Um, go to the website. Uh, the, I think starting tomorrow, there's going to be you know all sorts of stuff up on the site, like hey. Contribute to the TPM Journalism Fund, all, you know, kind of plastered everywhere, so you won't be able to miss it. Right now, well, actually, right now as I, um, right now as I speak, it is the top editor's blog post. Uh, it'll probably be some version of that when you're listening to this. Anyway, show up at the site. You'll, you'll, we will, we will not let you be lost when it comes to finding uh, where to contribute in our drive. One thing that um, our publisher mentioned uh, to, to Kate and I just before we got started is that, you know, most of us, like us at TPM, uh, the people who 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 run the organization, and and to a lot of 
to a lot of our uh, uh, longtime readers, you know, to us, the, the, the podcast is just sort of like a permutation of the site, right? It's, it's like another face of the site. Uh, but, you know, probably because Kate is so good, we have people who love the, the Josh Marshall podcast who, as, as Joe, our publisher, was saying, some of, them some of them don't even know that there's a website. Well, there is a website. Believe me, there is a website, and it is it is that website, that organization that allows us to do all of this stuff. So uh, this week's episode of the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by TPM, the company that that publishes this this amazing uh, hour long bit of content. So if you game, if you like the podcast, come participate in our drive. It's cool, you know. Any amount is awesome, and and we really appreciate it. So with all of that. Uh, Kate, what's, what's the deal? You're back. What's the story? Yeah, it's funny. I expected to return to, you know, kind of a calamitous, like few days away from the X state, uh, you know, one of those kind of rare times where Congress not only actually, you know, works a Friday, but there's talk and mutinous grumbles about working into the weekend and the two sides are far apart and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I basically came back to kind of like, all right, uh, a business as usual negotiation between a split Congress, you know, was all but finished and, and kind of headed to the president's desk. And then when I looked into the particulars of the deal, I was honestly kind of blown away that it was so painless for Biden and the Democrats. I mean, considering that the leverage that Republicans had was blowing up the economy, the, you know, the, the promised cuts and the work requirements are just like fairly small potatoes. It's not a bill that obviously Democrats ever would have passed if they had total control, but that's not the situation we're in, right? So, I mean, it was just very kind of nibbly at the margins kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, now we're kind of enjoying the uh, the aftermath of the furor of the House Freedom Caucus, which is now seeming to be pretty peeved by how like poorly it played its hand during this debate. And so is now kind of venting its spleen on McCarthy by refusing to let, you know, kind of standard issue House GOP uh, red meat come to the floor. Like they blocked a rule for the first time in years um, that would have brought, you know, a, a don't touch our gas stoves bill to the floor. Yeah, like the gas stoves Freedom Act or whatever exactly. it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So honestly, I was just kind of shocked by how painless it all ended up being. And, you know, you're um, opening kind of gets at this, which is like, I have been kind of reading everything to try to catch up. And while, um, you know, I was kind of traipsing around Europe, I didn't have phone service. So I was like truly disconnected. And I'm trying to like, you know, go through all these stories and find what is the kind of nugget of explanation for how this ended up being resolved in such kind of a non-dramatic way, um, given all the buildup. And they're just like, is there's no yeah, it's not there. It's not. There's no real good explanation. It really just feels like ultimately it came down to kind of the simple calculus of McCarthy, like you say, knowing that the House Freedom Caucus is like not going to be a good faith negotiating partner. So kind of uh, instead deciding on a, a bill of goods that would get enough Democratic support to get it over the hub. But you know what's so weird about that, obviously, is 
that's a much more kind of normal negotiator thing to do than I think we thought McCarthy was capable of, coupled with the fact that you had him, at least theoretically, in these people's debt post the speakership fight. Or, you know, by all accounts, that's what everyone was saying. You know, we agreed to these deals and blah, blah, blah. And he seemed, you know, at the 11th hour kind of willing to either in fact or the way they're perceiving it, kind of go back on that in favor of not defaulting. And I I really think if we had one kind of miscalculation going into this, it was that McCarthy was perhaps more of the house freedom bent or more in their thrall than he ended up being, at least in this uh, negotiation. Yeah. I mean, I guess one way to look at it is that it's not surprising that he negotiate that he could negotiate a deal, lose a few dozen of his members, and just make it up with Democrats. You know, you you have you probably have I don't know a dozen plus Democrats who might not even be that against the deal on its own merits, and then you've got a few dozen more that may not like it, but like are so happy to to get default off the table and kind of like, let's move on, blah, 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 that you can make it happen. So that's not surprising. What's surprising is that certainly coming out of January, we thought, yeah, he can do that. But the next day he will lose his job and the whole thing will be thrown up into uh, chaos and blah, 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 blah. But that next thing didn't remotely happen. You had a few of them say like, oh yeah, we might do a motion to vacate. And and but then like you hear the womps in the background, right? It's just it's 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 clear. And even I remember, you know, uh Matt Gates is a big like, you know, Twitter bomb thrower, provoker and stuff like that. And he's out there saying X, Y, and Z. And I was watching, you know, people responding to him on Twitter saying, oh well you're gonna you're going to boot him out day after tomorrow. He's gone. He's vacating, blah, 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 blah. And even Geitz is like, yeah, no, wait, that's not going to work, dude. And like, you're like, dude, what happened to you? Like, that's low energy. Right. And, you know, just so what I said about McCarthy not being in their thrall is not misinterpreted, because I don't mean to say that he turns out to be a, a reasonable, you know, legislator, whatever. But it, his whole career so far has been staked on like amenability, right? Making himself kind of ideologically not rooted to anything, have no real policy convictions, and be willing to kind of be like a yes man to whoever is the nexus of power. And to this point, that has translated into him, you know, refusing to punish the House Freedom people like the craziest wing nuts, um, you know, making Democrats kind of uh, oust them from committees instead of doing it himself. His it was pretty reasonable to come into this thinking that uh, if he was going to carry water for anyone, it would be the House Freedom people, because that's really what he's been doing up till this point. And the speakership fight, I think, showed their willingness to kind of like humiliate him because they knew that they had this power over him. So I think there was some thinking that that same dynamic would play out to some degree in this negotiation. And what seemed to happen is instead, he made the calculation that the only way to avoid default, I mean, was going to be on the backs of Democrats, which ended up resulting in a deal that he knew most Democrats would vote for. So he couldn't, you know, he didn't have the space to kind of put in all the really horrific stuff that they wanted to put in because this passed with mostly Democratic votes. Um, I guess, I guess there, were, there were more, actually more Democratic votes than Republican votes, yeah. like not by much, but but because yeah. it was like, but but by a little. And, That's you know, true. 
there's some people who I've seen some critics uh, largely on the left, you know, left within a democratic context saying, well, this is going to come back to bite them. They're going to be able to say, hey, democratic bill, you know, more democratic votes. I, it, in general, I don't, the people, you've, you know, that's the, that is sort of like the equivalent of being very online. That's like very into legislative procedure. Like, you know, people aren't going to say like, oh, Democrats are one of the work requirements. Well, that's weird. And like, no one thinks that. But go ahead. Yeah, well, it's also not how McCarthy himself is touting it, right? He keeps going out and saying, like, the people who voted no are going to regret it. This is the most conservative bill of a lifetime. You know, it hollows out the like, whatever. I mean, he's just lying. Right. But it's he is definitely trying to paint this as not not even like a oh, a return to the old bipartisanship of Washington. I mean, he's very much. Yeah, we totally is, own the libs was, here. Yeah, this was yeah. my deal. I did he it. killed it. Yeah. You all underestimated old Kev once again. Yeah. Well, I will say, I uh, it, it, at least in this limited sense, I did underestimate him. I did not think he could do this. And one thing that occurred to me uh, as this was happening was that, you know, we say this thing about how any single member of the House, uh, any well, actually any member of the House, but particularly any Republican, can uh, push a privileged motion. What is it? Privileged motion? Privilege? Yeah, I guess a privileged motion, which basically just means you kind of say, "Okay, I want to have a vote," and and it, you're having the vote. You don't have to get it through the Rules Committee, or you know, it, it's not in the Speaker's hands. So, and and that's true, but like, okay, you can have the vote, but you still got to win the vote. And, and that doesn't mean you can win the vote. And sort of more to the point, uh, you don't just have to win the vote, like get the most votes. You have to find someone who can get a majority. Exactly. And I, and I think what, um, so, you know, one way to put that is, could they come back and have four Republicans not vote? Or I, I always get confused now, whether it's four or five, because there was one Democrat missing and now that Democrats replaced, blah, 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 blah. Um, could they bring him under the majority level? Eh, probably, right? If there was enough to have one person want to call the vote, that doesn't mean they could replace him. And I think, and this is where I kind of, I, I, I think I did underestimate him. Um, my sense is that what he was thinking, seeing all the different moving parts here, was thinking like, okay, you can do that. I'm going to head to the beach. You call me back when you realize that you've got to elect me all over again. Until then, I'm just going to be sitting with like my pina colada, uh, you know, and and my 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 pale torso and and kicking back uh, on the you know on the chaise lounge or whatever because that's really what it is. And I think that what he must have realized at some level was there are, you know. 200, probably 200 Republicans, certainly 180 Republicans, probably 200 Republicans who are like, wow, we were kind of, you know, yeah, we want to own the libs, but the Freedom Caucus really kind of dragged us pretty far out on a limb here. And somehow McCarthy kind of put this to bed and we got a few things, but now we're kind of, there's not going to be default and we're moving on. And by doing that, I think he knew they're never going to find someone else. There is no way that 
Clyde and Matt Gates and Higgins and whoever these all these other dudes are are going to be able to you know are going to be able to say hey we're preventing uh, McCarthy from getting it and now you've got to elect Jim Jordan or you've got to elect this Donald's weirdo from Florida or something like that I think he realized that he had kind of everybody else thinking fuck that we are not we are never going to allow you to elect anybody but Kevin McCarthy. And in that sense, his job kind of was pretty safe or safer than, than since he, he was able to call their bluff. Now, it, it's, it's always hard to, you know, you can't really get in someone's head, right? Especially because they are, um, in a case like this, everybody is trying to stand tough and they're not showing you kind of what they're really thinking. But I think that is something like the the calculus. And here's here's one thing I, I that I I asked one of my friends up on the hill, and I think it became moot uh, sort of before they got back to me, so I never found out. One thing I wasn't sure about is when you have that motion to vacate, um, or okay, so motion to vacate, we're going to have the vote, and then you have the vote and say McCarthy isn't reelect, but no one else is elect in that period. Is there no speaker or is McCarthy like a, um, a caretaker speaker? Like, you know, still, I don't know, pulling the speaker levers or whatever. Now, if we remember back in January, which the Freedom Caucus guys were so upset about, he had already moved into the speaker's office, right? So things are kind of informally going ahead. And I think I remember, and sorry to go kind of so deep onto the particulars here, I think I remember that the point was at the beginning, until they elected something, someone, the only thing that could happen on the floor was the clerk continuing to hold new votes, right? Um, but in some ways, what caretaker or not, is he really stopping being speaker? Not really, you know, in any meaningful sense. So I think my flourish there about I'm going to go to the beach until you figure out you've got to elect me again is is kind of true, right? And that was sort of part of his strength. I think that's true too. I think the fundamental thing about this that I'm still not clear on is going into this, I assumed that the idea of hobbling Biden going into 2024 was worth the cost of default to most Republicans. The idea that no matter how well he handled the fallout, he would inevitably at that point be saddled with you know, an economy that was struggling to to a degree that we still don't even really have a clear picture of, but could be something as massive as like a, a major recession. At the very least, it's going to be chaos and market instability and all the kind of trickle down effects that has. And I, I thought that carrot would be worth the widespread pain of a default to more Republicans than it ultimately seemed willing to to make that trade. Yeah, I mean I, I guess I see it not I see it in a way that is consistent with that but with a kind of a different emphasis but it is a, but same difference which is that their base wants to see Biden humiliated. You know, to kind of like that he's got to basically bow down to them. The things he fought so hard for, he's got to give them up. Because now we have the juice and we are going to stick it to you. You know, the whole Adam Serwer, the cruelty is the point, right? So it's not even, and, and that's why 
you know, that it always seemed to me that where, where McCarthy would have flexibility is kind of on the policy terms. Because most, most of these guys are not really like, oh, you know, this policy or that policy and the, you know, the COLA, I mean, whatever. It's, it's to kind of make him bleed, you know, to kind of metaphorically, McCarthy goes up there and just like socks him in the gut. And he's like, oh, you know, when you, when you have the, you know, if you, when you were young, if you ever had the breath knocked out of you, literally, right, that feeling. And that, and again, obviously that is consistent. It's the same difference as the kind of thing that that hobbles him for for 2024. But so much in that world is performative and 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 to dominate and to punish. And yeah, that that's I agree. I, I don't get that. That that kind of to me that that's what um, that's why they were so charged to to win the house to stick it to Joe. Yeah, and 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 they've you know you have this kind of. Um, you know, you always have this kind of backdraft among Democrats. You're going to have some be- Democrats say, yo, yeah, this was a disaster. Like the whole last two years is meaningless now that we've done X, Y, and Z. And uh, there were, I guess, 50 or give or take Democrats who voted against it. Um, I actually think that that was fine. And I understand why they did it. And I think even uh, Representative Jayapal basically said, you know, we wanted only to give enough votes for it to pass, which is, you know, very pragmatic. We didn't, it was not worth sabotaging this, but there's no reason to have given a single vote more than that because these were not good things that happened. And that's, you know, I totally respect that. That makes perfect sense. Uh, But what struck me was there are certain people on, you know, the leftward side of the Democratic coalition that I was kind of watching what they said, because those are people who were going to uh, complain about any deal. And and when I say complain, I don't, I don't mean that in some pejorative sense, oh, they're always whining or something like that. You have different, you have different groups who have, who focus on different things. Um, and I was, I was looking at the people who were most inclined to see any deal in those terms. And I think to a person, they all ended up saying, wow, didn't think Biden could get a deal like that. You know, I mean, you know, you know, still saying like, you know, these work requirements suck, which they do 100%. And it sucks that we're going to have a, uh, you know, de facto cuts across the board next year, because in an inflationary period, if you hold if you hold spending at, you know, at at exactly the same terms, that's that is, uh, um, you know, in, in effect that that's a cut. But they just didn't get much, and 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 one thing it's 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 funny that that certainly they allowed McCarthy in selling this to go to his people and say, eh, Joe Biden wasted that time, said he you know said he wouldn't negotiate, but I you know bent him to my will, and he did negotiate, and blah 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 blah, which you know. Okay, yeah, he did. He did get him to negotiate, and he said he was not going to negotiate. So they, they 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 sort of gave him an open an open field to say, "Wow, Joe Biden, you know, I I I I, you know, broke him over my adamantine strength." Blah 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 blah. Um, to sell it to Republicans, and even now, like they're not, you know, for my 
for my personality type, I kind of wish they would do a little more of saying like, dude, you joked. You, we we, we kind of stiffed you and, and you didn't get anything and that's awesome and, and you must be sad and uh, blah, but they're not. Yeah. They're bipartisan, uh, bipartisan Right, right. I want to go back to one thing you said, which is really critical in my mind, which is the current iteration of the Republicans party is kind of like inattention to policy stuff, the really like wholesale switch to the culture war type stuff that they clearly think kind of plays better with the base. Because in that way, it almost made this debt ceiling negotiation less dangerous than the 2011 iteration. Because then when you had like, you know, the kind of Paul Ryan ascendancy, you had the leaders of the Republican caucus who were kind of staking their whole career on like hobbling, you know, uh, Social Security and Medicare and like with the whole uh, cutting government spending stuff. And when that was actually like the ideological center uh, of those of the party and then the kind of like, you know, cruelty to minority groups and stuff were just uh, peripheral interests to that kind of central thing. Um, and now that dynamic has changed so much that in, in that way, I think it did ease McCarthy's uh, task here because there just aren't that many people left in the Republican Party that are like shouting from the rooftop about this missed opportunity to, you know, cut down on the debt and to and to, you know, get privatize Social Security and blah, blah, blah. Like that is just so much less potent of a force now that he did have really wide latitude to, you know, get these like, quote unquote, cuts in kind of whatever way he could get them. And even when we ended up with this pretty paltry slate of cuts, he can still kind of go out and yell about, oh, you know, we're, we're making people work, you know, no welfare queens here, whatever. Like he can he can do the same talking points, but there's so so much inattention to the policy itself that it doesn't really matter for his purposes that he didn't get you know, severe cuts in any kind of sense of the word. Yeah. And one, one thing, I mean, it is, it does sort of limit you when the head of your party is, you know, at least most of the time, always on the position of, yeah, we're not touching anything to do with social security or medic Medicare, because that's a lot of the budget. And one, I think it was an editorial in the Washington Post, you know, a very Washington Post editorial in kind of, you know, old style, uh, you know, budget school marm kind of woe is me kind of uh, posture saying, yeah, you know, it's great. We didn't, we didn't default, but you know, let's look what happened. You know, one party basically walled off defense and veterans affairs and the other party walled off social security and Medicare. So that's everything. And it is kind of everything. I mean, it, it basically is, I mean, there's, there's, there's very little left. Um, and so from that, you know, kind of Pete Peterson-ish vantage point that the the post editorial page speaks from on the on these issues, they were like, you know, any opportunity to really deal with the country's fiscal mess was lost from the beginning. But I think to your point, you have a Republican Party and a Democratic Party who are kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, we, we we don't we're not in that mode anymore, and so we don't really care. Uh, and I and I think big picture, they're right. Now it's not that we don't care. It it it's that that um, one of the many things we 
learned from the great, the uh, forget what we're calling it these days, the Great Recession, the world financial crisis, whatever, is that you know we we had an extended, not technically a recession, but an extended sort of austerity driven period of anemic growth, which did a lot of things, not least of which is probably it helped uh, elect Donald Trump as president. And uh, we, you know, we have the federal debt has gone up a lot in the last four years or so. Um, first, the, the, the Trump tax cut, but we did a lot of spending starting in 2020 and have, have continued to do so. And like the economy is like rocking, right? And, and, and much more than a lot of other countries are, you know, um, certainly, I mean, the UK is a whole other thing, but uh, it's just a different time. And there's not much of a constituency in either party for that kind of thing. So that, that, that has an effect. Totally. And, you know, just the last thing I want to say on this is perhaps the biggest triumph for Biden out of this negotiation is the can being kicked till post the 2024 election, which has not been getting that much play, but it's kind of a huge concession by Republicans because I cannot imagine that's a leverage point they wanted to give up easily. The idea that they could kind of do this, but more intense in campaign season where everyone like hates each other even more than they usually do. And there's the kind of direct reward of messing up Biden's campaign in the home stretch. I mean, that is a huge weapon that they kind of unilaterally disarmed here and I think it's what January 2025. It'd be like right before inauguration for yeah. you know Biden or presumably Trump. So yeah, it's not exactly that. That it's and and also I mean the, the the key was they wanted they wanted to do this again, as you say, sometime in 2024, sometime some ideal electoral time, and they also wanted the freeze to be like out to like 2030 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the kind of like you, you get another bite at um, hobbling Biden going into the, into the, into his reelection campaign and you lock in austerity even through the rest of his second term if he wins. So you kind of win on both fronts. And that was the big, again, for um the the people, the sort of the thought leaders, influencers, whatever in the Democratic coalition who are who are on that side, who are most focused on 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 that stuff, that was their big thing. That was their big worry. We're going to basically lock in um, kind of a a stiff austerity regime for the rest of the decade just like happened in 2011. And what actually happened was that you froze not at 2022 levels, but at 2023 levels. And then you go up, um, that's 2024. And in 2025, you go up 1%. Now, that's, those are meaningful cuts in, re, in real terms. But what a lot of, not only is, is 2023 levels different from 2022 levels, but just in terms of how any organization works, it is inherently easier to say, okay, we only have as much money as we just spent in the previous year. So how are we going to keep working on that? That is just in real terms and psychologically different from, okay, wow, we actually are going to have less money in real dollar terms than we did the year before, but it's over in two years. So 
and and um you know the reality is you know one thing i saw a lot of people and i don't mean to you know people's heart is in the right place but i i, I saw a lot of people saying wow he agreed that he's not going to raise taxes on anybody under four hundred thousand uh, dollars for the next two years. Like they, you know, why did he concede that? Well, first of all, the four hundred thousand dollar mark was his campaign mantra, so he was presumably never going to do that. A and B, there's a Republican Congress this year and next year. Of course, there was not going to be any tax increase on anybody. That's obvious. So you have you had a lot of things like that in this negotiation where and and it's hard to say how much of this was explicit with the negotiators but you know let's come up with a bunch of things that you can tell your supporters are really awesome even though they're totally meaningless and that's certainly one of them you know we're not going to. We're not. We're not going to. We're not going to invest another trillion dollars in in solar for the next two years. Well, presumably not, because Democrats don't control Congress, right? And it was. It, it was. You know, they had that thing where they cut. I guess it was initially they said it was ten at ten billion ten billion out of the eighty billion for the IRS to to you know beef up enforcement. Again, I I I don't know ex- what the exact number was, but you know, they trimmed some of it. Not a huge amount, but like whatever you gotta, and and I think they took that money and they kind of put it back into the basically into the social services pile to kind of you know take some of the hit off the freeze and and blah 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 blah. Um, but a lot of it was stuff like that of kind of like let's come up with some kind of gimmicks that you can sell it to your people since mm-hmm. you're basically getting you know Joe's kind of cleaning you out here and. We need to we need we need to make it possible for you to to actually pass this thing, right? Okay, so let's talk about um, the the new entrance to the GOP twenty twenty four presidential race um, that have happened of late, which include we had Tim Scott. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, June seventh, which I think is um, the official day that Mike Pence is going to roll out his run. Um, is Wahoo. that who? Am I missing anyone? Uh, well, oh, Chris Christie. Chris Christie. There's there's some random dude in like North Dakota. Oh, South right. Um, Burgum. Burgum. Like who mm-hmm. I didn't even know was a person who he's, <laughs> he's going to run. I feel like there's one other person we're not we're not. Um, well, there's kind of there's there's a slight, slight amount of young momentum mm. in Virginia mm-hmm. that he who he seems to be like the new kind of post DeSantis kind of GOP meme stock. You know that the, 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 the high rollers are going to get behind, right? But yeah, I think it's I think it's Pence, uh, Pence and Christie are the sort of the official mm-hmm. new entrance. Oh, right. I think did the Berg- and, I thought the Burgum guy did get in, didn't he? Just yeah, say he yesterday did. he's in. So uh-huh. three, so three people and Tim Scott. So and Tim Scott, but he was in, right? Right, right, right. So, um, it's funny because the. The reactions to the entrance have been like amusing to me. It seems that everyone in kind of like the media pundity class is most amped about Chris Christie, not because he has a better chance of getting the nomination than any of these people, like all of whom have no chance. You know, it's kind of either it's going to be Trump. And then if Trump like implodes or dies or something, right, like, then yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe DeSantis. But 
um, you know, Christie is kind of he's getting into this race on the promise that he is going to rough up Trump. That is like the only thing that he is uh, kind of touting as the reason he's getting into this, which I think is probably kind of like one part um, angling for some kind of like cable news type contract. And I think one part probably just pure vengeance for Trump, like nearly killing him and also embarrassing him on uh, in a myriad of um, situations. And it it is just kind of rich to have him going in being like, I'm the only one who's like not afraid to take shots. The MAGA king, considering how he perhaps bears more responsibility than like anyone else in the Republican Party for legitimizing Trump's run uh, in, you know, 2015 into 2016. But obviously, the reason why all these people are kind of giving attention to this is it's going to be great TV. And you've got this whole field of candidates who refuse to not only kind of make the case why it should be them and not Trump, you know, much less criticize him in any kind of way. And now you've got Chris Christie who, you know, gotta give him credit. He is just a skilled bully. He's really good at it. Like he humiliated Marco Rubio uh, for the, in the 2016 race. I mean, he didn't he, didn't he do with Cruz too, kind of? I, I, yeah, I, I think. He did with, but it was Rubio who was the one he really who just he ended gutted. his campaign. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think it'll be really interesting. Not again, not that Chris Christie has any chance of getting the nomination. He does not. But it's going to be interesting because nobody has come at Trump in any kind of meaningful way. Like DeSantis will sometimes do a little like, like, don't you want organization and uh, no chaos in your administration? Like that's kind of the farthest he's like willing to go. Exactly. <laughs> like heaps of subtext. Yeah. But Christie is going to go, you know, gloves off and he's going to try a bunch of different stuff. And it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what lands because th this is something that people have struggled with across the board. Like it's hard to beat up someone as shameless as Donald Trump. But I think if anyone can do it, it's probably a Chris Christie with absolutely nothing to lose. I, I, I think that's right. And <laughs> I also think you're hundred percent right that people are just pumped because he's entertaining. Mm -hmm. Let's not lie about that. He's entertaining. Um, what I like, what I haven't been clear on is, has he decided what he's attacking Trump for? Don't think so. Like, like I'm not even quite sure. Like what? Like what? What's the? What do you come up with? Why do you hate Trump now? Um, and I, I assume it's not that he sent him to get hamburgers or something, right? Although probably it is. But he's got to. He's got to have like you know notionally something different fr from that. I think one thing that is, I was corresponding with a reader about this. One thing, it's not just that Chris Christie is a bully. It's that Chris Christie is a bully out of the Donald Trump milieu. Mm -hmm. And what that is, is this. There is, and to some extent, I think you've got to kind of be from this area, i.e. the greater New York region, which is New York City, Long Island, um, the outer suburbs of in, in New York State of, of, of New York City, a lot of Connecticut and and certainly the northern part of New Jersey, the tri-state area. And there is a type in the tri-state area. Giuliani was one of them. Chris Christie was one of them, governor of New Jersey. Donald Trump is one of them. It's a type and it is a, they're all kind of uh, belligerent white guys 
Um, none of them are terribly conservative in the sense of the modern Republican Party. And in this sense, I mean the Republican Party of the last 50 years. They're not coming from any sort of like, you know, evangelical base or any of that kind of stuff. They tend to be uh, fairly socially liberal in the sense of sexual politics and stuff like that. No one ever thought like Rudy was like, or any of these guys are too bent out of shape, you know, they all have gay friends and and they're all kind of, you know, serial philanderers and been married 10 times and all that kind of stuff. But they they it's a type in this region's politics. And it generally I think the type is best understood as you've got a fairly liberal region. Um it's a fairly diverse region. Um, it also has a pretty pugnacious politics, and there is usually room for a kind of brawling, conservative-ish, strongman type whose position in the politics is generally and is, is generally kind of like, yeah, we're liberal and all. You got all the groups fighting, but we're going to have one no-nonsense dude to kind of knock everybody's heads to prevent it from getting too weird. That was Rudy Giuliani's politics. Now, there are softer and, and much harder, nastier versions of it. Um, in some ways, Christie was a softer version of it in New Jersey. Um, but still that type, that kind of just uh, say crazy things, do politically incorrect things, and just be a brawler and a bully. And again, it fit it it fits into um it it fits into the politics in this region. And Chris Christie is that guy. And it's the fact that he's that guy that I think gives him some 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 leg in with Donald Trump because Donald Trump's that guy. Mm -hmm. They're both out of that same thing. It it is a kind of a it's a it's a kind of a mirror image thing of the politics of this region and that would be kind of meaningless in the American South, even though obviously Trump does very well in the American South, but that's because he's kind of brought it national in a, in a different way. There's this sense of there's a lot of groups and there's part of the politics that a lot of the groups, they're very demanding. They want a lot of stuff and we're not going to stop having all these groups. And let's be clear. A lot of the groups are the black people, the the Puerto Ricans, the gays. They're all demanding stuff. And even people who kind of like are not conservatives in the South sense are open to the appeal of someone like a Chris Christie or Rudy Giuliani or a Donald Trump who's going to come forward and say, knock everybody's heads around. I'll knock them all down a, a few notches and I'll get things under control. And they're both from that. It's a type. It's a type in this region. Um, and uh, so Chris Christie knows the type because he is the type. And I think that's what he's going to bring to Trump. Yeah. I mean, and on the other end of the kind of genteel spectrum, uh, we have Pence, who <laughs> yep. by all accounts, like, seems to be embarking on what he thinks is like God's mission for him, which I actually find to be the only plausible explanation for why he's running. Um, it, it also kind of ups the number of people that Trump tried to kill 
on the primary stage to two, Mm -hmm. which is like kind of an interesting stat. Um, And then you've got Tim Scott, who's kind of doing the whole like happy warrior type thing. You know, his whole thing is uh, he's the only black person who has served both in the House and the Senate. You know, he has always kind of stood apart as one of usually the only, you know, one of few kind of black Republicans and has always done this thing with race that's like, you know, liberals want want you to think that this is a racist country. I'm here to prove otherwise, you know, kind of does that work of absolving the Republican Party of its many sins on race by uh, saying like, oh, this is just kind of hyperbole. This is just liberals making you feel bad for yourself about yourself. Um, but he also talk, he does this thing where like, oh, my God, you know, Beltway reporters love it that he's kind of like he's smart and he's nice and um People like his colleagues like him, which is like a huge for some reason counts like really heavily in the coverage of him, even though he also was a just a rubber stamp on Trump's agenda the whole time he was in office. And the biggest was always cited as his like pushback against Trump was after Charlottesville when he said that Trump might have lost some of his moral authority. Like that, that's yeah. a big stance he took against right. Trump. Right. And he did. I will say he he. um the one other thing I will say in his on his ledger is that he um, had a few interventions in the policing debate about, you know, black men, black people aren't imagining it when like you get pulled over constantly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, these are I, I think as you as you said, one of the things about you kind of have this head scratching when you look at the at the sort of the mainstream media coverage of him, like everybody likes him. Nice guy. Very articulate. You're like, well, what, 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 what are we, what, what are you saying here? Like, what, mm-hmm. like, do you have like, kind of like, uh, you know, Ron Wyden, nice guy, <laughs> very articulate young man. Everybody, all his colleagues like him. Like you kind of like it, 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 it gets kind of awkward that you sort of want to ask, like, did you think he'd be like beating people up? Like, or, or like he's Why like, is this such a surprise? That, that he's like dealing or something? Or what are you like? Okay, he's a senator. I mean, yeah, people he gets along with. It's, it's, it is, um, I, I think what you can come back to is like, certainly in no universe is he going to be the Republican nominee for president. Although I will say this, you know, you said before about how if, if somehow Trump departs the political scene, whether he defar- departs, um, this earth or or just you know is 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 taken into custody or something like that but if he departs then it'll be DeSantis. i'm not so sure about that i'm not a hundred percent sure about that yes it is probably still the most likely because you know they they there's been this um there's been this series of articles out in the last few weeks saying like yeah you know ron has no chance but man he has 200 million dollars with his super PAC and he's mm-hmm. gonna, he can do a lot. So he does have money and he's got money to invest and stuff like that. But I, I do feel like, um, like I'm not totally sure because a, he's just, I think for a certain number of people, he's become a caricature. Totally. You know, kind of meatball Ron and kind of like squeaky, awkward voice and kind of, and, and, uh, also a situation where, this is such something that political reporters 
are so much more readily inclined to do to Democrats than Republicans. But I think in this case, they are looking for every single example of him being weird or awkward and writing a story about it. So that totally. narrative is just like self-reinforcing every single day. There, there, there was, I can't remember maybe a week ago or something like this, you know, and I, I read the the Axios newsletter and the political newsletter and the semaphore and all that kind of stuff. I think it was maybe Axios. And I look at it one morning and it's like, new scandal. Ron DeSantis doesn't know how to pronounce his own name. And <laughs> I'm like, what? And I guess it's, and I talked to uh, a TPM alum who who works for one of these places, not, not the place that publishes. And this person said, it's actually true. Like you look at the ads, like in one speech, he'll pronounce his name one way in another speech or in a, maybe like in the ad, he pronounced it another way. And so apparently it's true as far as it goes. But I remember when I saw this, I'm like, this is when you know your campaign is dead. When this becomes a story, when people are like, does Ron DeSantis know how to pronounce his own name? As you say, it's the kind of thing like when it's, when it's I, I normally kind of say like the frivolity of the political press, but kind of like, you know, can't happen to a nicer guy in this case, right? But it, but it does kind of show you like, that is when you're just, you're just dying. That, that, that someone pitches you on a story like, check this out, man. Ron is, is, is so phony. He can't, he's, he's going back and forth on how he pronounces his name. And like, I love it. I love it. We're leading the newsletter with that tomorrow. You, as you say, it's just, they start looking for everything. And it's sort of, I, I'm sure it, it sort of becomes like that thing where you're running up the stairs and you think about, wait, am I, am I stepping right? So my, so my foot is going to land on the stair at the right time. And then you fall over on your face. Cause you can't, you can't think about it that much. And that's probably, that's probably it. And that's when, that's when, again, that's when a campaign is in, in free fall. And to, to address the specific point, I, I just, I feel like he's become a caricature enough that I'm not sure he would be the automatic nominee without Trump. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it's become a bit of a Trumpite badge of identification. Like you hate meatball Ron. Yeah. I mean, I would also like to stake out that I, predicted that he was doomed as soon as that story about him eating pudding with his fingers came out. Like that is just, it's too freaking weird to come back from. And I think that is- And it's like, too memorable. You're exactly. not going to remember that he's like, oh man, he wanted the the cola increase in social security right. to be X. You're like, man, I'm never going to forget that. It's yeah. too indelible. Right. You know? And the thing is that like, I he brought this upon himself because of his um, office's delight in like um, publicly humiliating reporters, like mainstream reporters who tried to talk to him. I mean, it's like the reason that most people don't do that is because reporters do a service to you. Um, but and they can also every, hurt you exactly. A lot. And the, but the yeah. thing is, like everyone does weird shit, especially on the campaign trail, which is this like full of artifice and kind of like forced interpersonal connection in front of cameras. So it's just, I totally agree with you that once you get into this spot where that is what everyone is looking for, you're just doomed because campaigning is like inherently awkward, even for the most charismatic among us, you know? Um, and so and I just think all, there's- You're also living out of a suitcase. Exactly. Like, literally, figurative or literally. You're yeah. tired and you're doing this stuff all the time and there are going to be gaps and the, it's just going to be an endlessly iterative vein because, you know, by all accounts, we know that he 
is not the most charismatic guy to begin with. And now this is like what everyone's decided, like, oh, he's weird. So let's look for stories about him being weird. So every new like campaign trip becomes like, let's see if he can be normal. Yeah. What do you think? How normal was he? And everybody's like, Exactly. Not normal at all. Here's what he did. And like building off your point there of the kind of lack of of inherentness and DeSantis being the kind of second up now. One interesting thing about Tim Scott is that he has like buku bucks right now. He has $22 million left over from his Senate campaign. And that's just coming out without having fundraised at all. Um, And I have been kind of wondering if... You know, I don't know, because things with Trump are so fickle and it's hard to predict because he can like turn on a heel. But I wonder if there's any kind of Tim Scott as VP offing in the air, if he can kind of translate that war chest into some early state dominance where like retail politicking is easy and he's got less of a national um, profile than like Haley and Pence at this point. So there might be some novelty uh, burst, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so I don't know that, that that's kind of an interesting, uh, dynamic there. It's, it's certainly possible. And clearly there is at this point, 40% of the Republican primary electorate that is available Mm -hmm. for other people. Um, not never Trump, but you know, available and, and yeah, he could kind of catch on and, and it, it, I, I did a post about this, I think, yesterday or the day before. That that I mean, clearly the 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 um, you know the litmus test is: can you do it with never criticizing Trump? Mm-hmm. And you have DeSantis, or maybe more like Hale. You know, DeSantis has been has now criticized Trump a bit, yeah, a bit. And apparently, uh, someone told me that like like he doesn't do it in his speeches, but like when he does the scrum afterwards, he's like, oh, Trump. Not perfect. That's what I'm saying. That's my truth, right? <laughs> but you have someone like Haley saying stuff like, you know, I'm going to be really pro-democracy. You know, this kind, of, the, kind, of, this sort of like, oh, oh, God, okay, okay, got it. You're not going to be like him, right? Josh was winking for yes, our, this is our audio. The, the video, the video, <laughs> the video here. version of it. Um, but I think that that Scott is is def is fully in the mode of like I'm just pumped on America. Yep. No one's going to make me criticize anybody cuz exactly. I'm just I believe in America so much and that's why I'm here and America. Mm-hmm. And as long as as long as you do that like I don't know what I I I can't I mean people talking about like Carrie Lake being the vice presidential but like I feel like Trump's got to know that's not, that's not going to help. He's got that group. Mm-hmm. He, he does need, I, I don't know quite what his angle could be, but that's not gonna, that's not going to help. And I'm not sure she's as good at it, good as it as he is. Yeah. And I mean, again, Trump is flighty and, uh, you know, ephemeral in his affections. But his initial response to Tim Scott entering the race was like, uh, good on Tim. Good luck, Tim. Tim was a great ally to me while I was president. And, uh, you know, some kind of like, well, now that DeSantis is flailing, some good people are getting into the race. Go, Tim. And I guess so far, and of course, this could change, but so far, Trump has been uh, kind of saying like, let I don't, let's not attack 
Tim Scott. Yeah, well, it's 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 certainly you know the, there's this whole I mentioned back in the Soviet Union days when the Communist Party was the only party in the Soviet Union that wasn't actually true, and and people who know more Russian history than I do will will give me maybe follow up with the details. But basically, there were three or four legal additional parties that operated in the Soviet Union. And they would, I think, technically, you know, they had elections of a sort and everything, but so they would be allowed to run, but they would, they, they couldn't actually disagree. Like they had to, I don't know, have a slightly different emphasis on stuff. And they certainly didn't criticize. And that was kind of okay. That worked for everybody. And they actually have something like that in, uh, in China today. I actually looked it up like a, because I wanted to find the details. There are eight parties. They are um, it, overseen by something called the popular, the, what, what is it? Is it popular front or maybe United, United front uh, work department? These kind of, these kind of kept parties. And in the Chinese case, I think they were parties that existed before 1949, and they were sort of co-opted and allowed to keep existing and blah, 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 blah. And there's a kind of feel to that with these candidates. If, if, because as, as everybody knows, Trump needs a divided field. If it were just him and DeSantis, he would have a harder time of it. But if there's like eight other people, that's great. So Trump wants people to get in. Mm -hmm. And you can see there's sort of this tacit understanding, like, come in, say how much you love America. And that's awesome, dude. I'm not going to like make you like I made Rubio or Cruz or now I'm doing with DeSantis. I'm not going to kind of make you a joke. Just don't come at me. We, uh, we understand each other. And it does seem like he's doing that with, with Tim Scott. Yeah, And Nikki exactly. Haley to some extent. Right. Even though Nikki Haley is just, I mean, and, and Scott also, his like big initial fumble was when he got asked about abortion and he just like, blah, 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 and, and you, you know, had I no idea what yesterday said. that was about all of them, how, how it's like impossible for all of them. Totally. And, you know, that was kind of born from Nikki Haley getting asked um, at one of these CNN town halls about what degree of a gestational ban she would support. And she was like, well, yeah, do, do Joe and, and Kamala support a 39-week ban? You know, you ask them that, which she's getting into this race and like staking a lot of it on being kind of the only woman. Like that's a lot of her cachet. And then seemingly kind of mixed in, she's trying to do a little bit of like compassionate conservatism stuff where she's like, yeah, let's not murder the women getting abortions. Okay. <laughs> like I'm willing to put myself out on a, on a limb there. Um, yeah, can, and doing, can we not all agree? Can we not? We shouldn't execute the woman who got an abortion. <laughs> exactly. Right. And the whole like, you know, I'll support whatever gets 60 votes, which is just, I mean, and of course, as an aside, then she did a horrible diatribe about trans people. So the compassionate conservatism stuff really only extends so far. But in terms of the, you know, she's trying to like position herself on the woman's issue as the, the only woman candidate so far in the field. And she just can't. She doesn't even have an answer on the abortion stuff, right? And, and I wrote that piece because it's obviously a problem for all of them, including for Trump. I mean, when you've got something you as a party have campaigned hard on for years that is suddenly electorally dangerous, like that's a hard dynamic. And you have to figure out some kind of way to position yourself that doesn't engender the backlash we keep seeing. And everyone has struggled to do that. But it is so pointed in Nikki Haley because it's like, isn't this your whole shtick? Like you're getting into this to be kind of like, I'm uh, the woman with a heart who is 
in some way different than all these like guys around me that just like don't have my perspective on this. And then she doesn't even have any kind of like a coherent answer to the question. It's also there's um, it's a bit of a dated pose in the more general politics in the sense of last time in 2020, I feel like maybe half the major candidates were women. It's, it's mm. not like a big thing anymore. And um, even though it is much more on the Democratic side than on the Republican side, there's quite a few Republican, you know, female Republican senators, right? And there's governors and, and it, it's not like when she when she pushes that line. And, and I mean, there's a Democratic, a, a female vice president, the nominee uh, in 2016 was a woman, hasn't been a woman president, but I mean, it's not 1992, right? And she's kind of acting like it's 1992, like I'm a woman running for this and that's a different, like, okay. I mean, like there's, there's a number of women that you're, you know, it, it, and it, as you say, it, 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 um, it, it puts her off balance if you want to say like, hey, I'm a woman, I'm coming at this from, you know, with a different life experience, another perspective, and I want a eight week ban, not a six week ban. You're like, oh, oh, okay. I, I guess that's a different perspective. It doesn't seem very different, but like right. whatever, right? You know, so. Yeah. Okay. So let's wrap up by talking about some of the muttering around, you know, we're, we seem to be sort of back on Trump indictment watch based on what seems to be just kind of like a, a spray of data points. You know, you've got stuff like Trump lawyers seen going into the DOJ and, uh, you know, movement by the grand jury and everything. So you want to give us just kind of a little summary of, of what those mutterings have been about and how like substantiated uh, another coming indictment seems at this point. Yeah, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like there's much of a there there. In some ways, it maybe seems kind of similar to where we were with Alvin Bragg before Trump came out and said, Tuesday, I'm being arrested <laughs> and that whole thing. And everybody, everybody, I think, think kind of understandably said, okay, he wouldn't say that if he didn't know. So it must be true. And then it wasn't true. As far as I can tell, the everything about Jack Smith's investigation has been run through a grand jury in Washington, D.C. And over recent weeks, apparently that grand jury has just ground to a halt. And who? why do we know that? We probably know it just uh, uh, a mix of lawyers and journalists who are staking it out and stuff like that. So the grand jury seems to be done. That's a decent signal. Um, Trump's lawyers went for this kind of uh, you know final conversation, not to indict our client. I think that was last week. That also seemed to be in response to this letter they wrote, basically saying how the investigation had been unfair. Uh, so there's a number of things like this that do seem consistent with its coming to a head. Uh, but as we know, these things are very hard to predict. And just yesterday, and it's possible I'm, I'm misstating some of the particulars here, but just yesterday, uh, the Times wrote this piece that now there's a grand jury that's, that Jack Smith has in Florida another federal grand jury. And in that Times piece, it was, you could read the piece and like, 
okay, I don't think you know, do you, why there's this other grandchild? Like, it's not, it's just not clear. Um, and some people were speculating, well, maybe there's a logic to you would bring some charges in Florida since it's in Florida and some charges in DC, uh, but they, they seem to be currently bringing in witnesses. So it's just kind of not clear. Sometimes what's hard to know in cases like this is sometimes kind of high level lawyers in the DC, you know, in around the, the federal courthouse in DC, just kind of hear, you know, you kind of get signals and stuff like that. And sometimes you figure, okay, since the, since we're hearing this press stuff, there's probably signals of things that can't quite be reported, but it gives reporters a heads up. Um, I get the sense there might be some of that, but I don't, there were a number of things that happened in the last couple of days that made it feel like this week, folks, this week, get ready. And maybe, but at least from what I was able to pick up and just read around and stuff like that, it, it didn't seem like there was that much, you know, kind of that much that was clear cut that really give us a sense of like, it's, we're, we're in the final rounds here and stuff like that. But maybe, you know, who knows? possible but I, I i think it's also entirely possible we could be here three weeks saying like okay i guess i guess it's not that imminent and then maybe it's the day after that who knows all right well we'll keep an eye yeah well uh let me remind you again we have the special sponsor in this episode which is tpm we have <laughs> our 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 annual uh, tpm journalism fund fundraiser it kicked off today um if you are a reader of the site you're probably going to be hearing about it right and left but if you're only a a listener to the podcast and you like the podcast i want to tell you there is a website and we have this uh, news organization that allows us to do this podcast so if you really like it uh you don't have to because it's it's the podcast is free to everybody um but it'd be great to uh support our work and um if you want to do that you can go over to talkingpointsmemo.com, which is the address of our website. And uh, I assure you, if you show up there, you're you're not you're you won't be lost. You'll see like, oh, here's here's obviously where I contribute. So consider that, and that is our uh, TPM is our sponsor this week for this week's episode. And I think that's uh, I think that's all we got. All right, we'll see you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.